So uh, here's what we're going to do uh, for your parents out there. I want you to raise your hand if you have raised at least two children at the same time. All right. So uh, if, you've, if you've only raised one child, you only get half credit. <laughs> I'm telling you right now. Because, and here's why. If you only have one child and you walk into the room and something is broken or spilled or half eaten, you know who did it, right? But not if you have two, three, four children, right? And so it can be quite a task. We, we raised three absolutely perfect children who never did anything wrong or got in any trouble, but there was this one day when they were all elementary age, and we walked into this room and we found that somebody had taken a bottle of Whiteout. You remember Whiteout? And, it, and it, was, it was all over the room. It was on everything, and it was spilled here and there, and the bottle was just laying there. And, and you see this, and you go, oh, um, I need to find the children, right? And so you gather, you go, hey, who spilled the Whiteout? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So you have three children who are convinced that somehow magically the bottle spilled itself. And they are convinced that none of them did this. And so you get mom and dad and all three kids in the same room and you sit down and you begin grilling them. Okay, where were you at 803 and where were you? Who, and, and you start asking questions and you do this uh, whole interrogation thing and you do the good cop, bad cop thing, you know, and mom's like, don't kill him. And I'm like, oh, I'm gonna kill him, right? We do all of that kind of stuff. And after 45 minutes, we have made no progress whatsoever. We still have no idea who did it. So, of course, we pull out the parent card and we say, here's what we're going to do. Um, everyone is going to be punished. We're going to punish all three of you. You're all going to be restricted all day in your rooms until somebody decides they're willing to admit that they spilled it. Nothing. Off to their rooms. Time goes on. Nothing. We check in on each kid. Is there anything you want to talk about? No. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. All day long. We never got the truth until 15 years later. <laughs> now understand, we knew the truth. We just didn't have the evidence, right? We knew the truth. There was one of our children at that season of their life who was having a little trouble with the truth from time to time, and we were pretty sure we had that figured out, but we couldn't prove a thing. And, and when somebody uh, is used to lying and they get caught lying, you know what they do? They lie louder, right? And... and, and uh, when a person's really committed to lying, it really creates some challenges. Finding the truth, understanding what's really going on. 
So for the past month and a half, we have been in this series entitled Satan's Favorite Lies and the Truth That Sets Us Free. And as I've said over and over again, um, the title can be a little bit misleading because it is not a study of Satan. It is not a study of his lies. It's actually a study of the truth he's trying to distract us from. And we want to make sure that we're studying this truth of God that will set us free. But since Satan lies all the time in order to confuse us or lead us away from God's truth, his most common lies serve as a perfect backdrop for us to examine the truth that he's trying to hide. So seven weeks ago, we started this discussion. Um, and we started in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, with a look at Satan's original lie to mankind. And we did that then really as an introduction to the series to say, let me tell you that Satan really exists and that he's a liar. Here's some example of that. Um, and today we're going to go back to Genesis 3. So if you've got Bibles, go ahead and open in Genesis 3. And we're not going there to establish that Satan is a liar. That's already been established in the series. Um, but we're, we're going there to look at the lie itself and discover the truth that he's trying to distort by telling the lie. So join me in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. It's right at the beginning of your Bible. Uh, if you're not familiar with your Bible, if you just open to page 1, that's Genesis 1. Turn a couple of pages, you get to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to pick that up in Genesis 3 in just a minute. Um, Adam and Eve have been placed in the Garden of Eden, and they've been told to live happily ever after, literally. They've been told that you have been given life from God, and now go and enjoy that life. And they were designed to live forever. And, uh, but in the middle of the garden, there's a tree. And God says, that's the one tree you cannot eat from. Now, why does God do that? Is it because he's mean and he wants to keep good things from us? No, he does it because God is love and he wants to free us up to experience the abundant life that comes only in a relationship with him. But that relationship, in order to be a relationship, must be consensual. In other words, if man has no choice but to trust and obey God, then it would not be an act of love and worship when we do it. We would be more like robots or puppets or something like that. So to truly worship God and experience the abundant life, we must have the option not to do so. So to truly worship God, we have to have the option. And so there's a very dangerous choice that is offered to Adam and Eve. But God has graciously been very clear from the beginning. He says there is the option to obey and the option to disobey. The option to obey leads to life and the option to disobey leads to death. But still, the option is yours. And so, Satan tells a lie. One of his favorite lies, he's trying to convince them that God's word cannot be trusted. And so, Adam and Eve believe that lie, and as a result, they get kicked out of the garden, and the rest is history. Why? Because God was clear. Sin leads to death. The scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is what? death. So Satan's first lie was a very effective one, and he's been repeating that lie in one form or another over and over and over again. Okay, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Okay, I I just want you to pick up on his tactics here. First, he tries to confuse her, right? He first comes along and says, I know God has spoken on this issue. Now, is this what he said or did he say that? In other words, he's trying to stir up the pot a little bit and bring some confusion. Has God said all these incredible trees with all this wonderful fruit and you can't even eat it? Is that what this God said to you? She gets it right. No, no, he didn't say that. He said there's one tree in the middle of the garden that we can't eat from. And then he comes right out and says, yeah, well, he's lying to you. You're not going to die if you eat from that tree. He's just trying to control you. He's just trying to manipulate you. He's just trying to be in charge. And so he, he gets to, to be confused, and then he gets her to question whether or not God's word can be trusted. Is God's word true and can it be trusted? Now, we're in a Christian worship service this morning, so you'd probably think the answer to that question is rather obvious. I mean, if you ask the average man on the street, hey, can the Bible be trusted? Is it really the word of God? You would probably get all kinds of answers. But if you ask the preacher... Can the word of God be trusted? If you, if you go into a Christian church on a Sunday morning and ask people, is the Bible the word of God and can it be trusted? You would expect to get a certain answer, but Satan lies so effectively that even that turns out to be surprising. For instance, a study was done recently where they asked denominal, denominational leaders, that's church pastors, Um, seminary professors, the ones who train the pastors, and the denominational um, leaders, they ask them this simple question. Do you believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God without error? And they did it by denomination. And it shows a shocking trend. 77% of American Lutherans said no. These are, these are leaders. 77% said, no, we don't think it's the word of God and without error. 87% of American Methodists said no. 88% of Presbyterians said no. 95% of Episcopalians said no. Wow. Now, why do I tell you this? Is it for shock value? Is it to bash other denominations? No, it's not it at all. It's for one simple reason. Every one of us is going to build our lives on something. 
What are we going to build our lives on? Is it going to be the trends? Because the trend in our culture, even in Christendom, the trend is to say that this is an ancient, dusty book that doesn't have a whole lot of relevance. It's nice, there's some good stories, there's some interesting lessons, but to say that it's God's spoken word for us is ridiculous. That's what the trend is. So you're either gonna build your life on trends or you're gonna build your life on truth. And so there are very important practical reasons for us to come to grips with whether or not God's word actually can be trusted. Is it really the ultimate source of truth? Now, I want you to turn to the first book of the New Testament. Go to the book of Matthew. The Old Testament's in the front of your Bible. The New Testament's in the back. Go to Matthew chapter uh, 7. Now, as you're turning there, who can tell me the context? What's happening in Matthew chapter 7? Anybody know? Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's Jesus' greatest sermon that we have recorded. It's him sort of launching his ministry and going, listen, let me tell you what you're getting wrong in your religious views, and let me set you on the right path. And he, he, he does what they teach young preachers to do in seminary. He says, we're, we're going to start with something that's going to catch everybody's attention. So he begins with the Beatitudes, and he, he challenges their the way that they look at life by bringing up the Beatitudes and saying, you know, you think that it's the rich who are blessed, but I'm telling you it's the poor who are blessed. And and he goes on and on about all of that. And so he starts off, gets their attention, then he addresses all of these issues through three chapters of a sermon. And then he comes to the very end after he said all of this stuff to sort of lay the foundation of Christianity. And at Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 24, we're going to pick it up as he closes the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus speaking says, therefore, after I've said all of this, three chapters worth, he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Now, these are two different people in Jesus' parable. Now, what they have in common is that they have both heard the words of God. They both have that in common. What they have separating them is that one acted on those words and the other one didn't. In other words, one believed that it was God's word, that it was truth, and that it was given for our lives and lived it out, and the other one didn't. So the one who acts on the word of God and applies it in his life is building his house on a firm foundation, and the one who does not act upon the truth of the word of God, the one who sees the Bible and says, well, that's interesting, maybe I'll give it some thought, and moves on, is going to face the same storms. And when those storms come, our lives tend to topple because our house is built on the sand. The storms in life are coming. What foundation 
is your life going to be built on? That's why this is an important question. Is the word of God trustworthy? Jesus says that his word understood and applied in our lives is the only trustworthy foundation there is to build your life upon. So the question of the reliability of the word of God is a very, very important question. So the question is simply this. Can God's word, the Bible, be trusted or should I be building my life on some other foundation? Now, let me just sort of pause here and say this. Uh, This is a big question. Is the Bible reliable? It's a very big question. It's a very important question. In fact, many, many, many books have been written on the topic. There have been debates held in rooms filled with thousands of people to discuss this topic. Many speeches have been made on this topic. Articles have been written ad nauseum on this topic. What do we think of this book? Because if it's actually the word of God and applying it to our lives is like laying a firm foundation for our life, we need to know that. And if it's just a man's opinion about this or that or the other thing, we also need to know that because if we build our life on something that is just man's opinion, it is going to topple when the storms come. So we could do a year-long seminary class on the reliability of the Word of God and still not have enough time to to plumb the depths of the topic. So we're not going to be able to to really do this question philosophical justice in the time that I have left today. But I do want to present some pretty compelling um, evidence that is going to give us some track for thinking to think rightly about the answer to this really important question. And because of that, today's message is going to feel a little bit less like a sermon, a little bit more like a seminar. So uh, bear with me if, that's, if you don't like that. Because uh, I'm going to argue that the Word of God, as we find it in the pages of Scripture, is absolutely true, absolutely accurate, and absolutely sufficient to serve as the foundation for our lives. And, and to begin that process, let's let the Bible speak for itself. That's not, can't be the only source from which we get the answer because it's speaking about itself. But let's go ahead and start there in the book of 2 Timothy. So if you're in your New Testament, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's toward the back of the Bible. After you get through the letters of Paul, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, you get to 1 and 2 Thessalonians and then 1 and 2 Timothy. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to pick it up in verse 16, a verse that is very well known to some of you. It says simply this, all scripture is inspired by God, or literally in the Greek, God breathed, breathed out from God. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So whether it's true or not hasn't been established yet, but let's just begin with this. The Bible claims to be the Word of God. It claims to be God-breathed. It claims to be profitable for teaching and reproof and instruction. It's, It's given to us by God according to the Scriptures. 
It claims to be the best and only sure foundation of truth. Now, does it stand up to scrutiny? Anybody can make a claim. I say it does. But before we get to that, let me ask you, what other options do you have? Where else are you going to build your house? Um, you, you could build it on your feelings. You could build it on public opinion and trends. But if you don't build your house on the word of God, where are you going to build it? We're going to, fly, we're going to jump around the scripture. If you're in 2 Timothy, just turn back to the left a little bit and find Romans. Romans is a pretty big book. Before you get to 1 Corinthians, find Romans chapter 12. And let's see what the Word of God warns us about with regard to this. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, says this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed, it says. Do not be squeezed into the world's mold. Do not be conformed to this world and this world's way of thinking. But instead, you have to renew your minds. Why do we have to renew our minds? Because we're swimming in this world. And the thoughts and the values and the ideas of this world inundate us constantly, right? And there's no way to avoid that. And so we have to be renewing our minds. It's like, it's like when you say, um, you know, I have this favorite shirt. I wear it every time I get the chance. Well, if you just wear it every day, your friends are going to say, yay, verily, verily, you stinketh. <laughs> right? So what do you do? You got to take it off and launder it. You have to get the gunk off of it so you can put it back on again and wear it. And, and our thoughts are very similar to this. Guys, no matter who you are, I don't care what radio stations you listen to or who your favorite bands are. I don't care whether you're a Fox guy or a CNN guy or I don't care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. I don't care what books you read. You are surrounded by thoughts that are contrary to the word of God. So he tells us, don't let that conform you and guys, it happens passively. If you do nothing, you will be conformed to this world. There's pressure being put on us constantly, and it, it, it forges our thoughts. And the way that we look at life, do not be conformed to this world. It is a, it's a worthwhile thing for you to think about. What do I watch? What do I listen to? What do I read? Who do I surround myself with? And are the things that they're feeding into me conforming me to this world? Or am I renewing my mind day by day with the word of God? Now, go back to the Old Testament book of Proverbs. It's right in the middle of your Bible. You'll find Psalms and then Proverbs. And I want you to go to Proverbs chapter 14. These are the wise sayings, mostly of Solomon, but also of some others. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12. It says this. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Don't believe that? Just ask Adam and Eve. Made perfect sense what they did. 
perfect sense. But the end is the way of death. The trends of public opinion are constantly shifting. 200 years ago, the average American believed that slavery was morally right. Was it? No, of course not. Of course not. But if everybody says it is, does that make it any more right? I saw a study recently. It said that, um, that uh, 50% of high school girls under the age of 18 are having sex. Well, that's a fact, apparently. That's a stat. Does that make it right or good or wise? No, right? It leads to all kinds of trouble as we know about. So, so just because the trends see th- things a certain way doesn't mean that they're true. Um, and by the way, <laughs> the, the slavery example, which is such an easy one to come up with, it, It's always been the position of the Bible that every single human being has dignity because we're made in the image of God. That's what the Bible has taught from Genesis to Revelation. Those people who owned other people during a time when that was legal to do were in direct violation of the teaching of Scripture. You say, well, there's verses in the Scripture about how to treat your slaves. That is because they had slaves. They were correcting the way they were dealing with it. It was never okay to treat a human being as a piece of property. That was just a couple hundred years ago. 500 years ago, every educated person on earth knew that the world was flat. Was it? Absolutely not. I mean, unless you look at certain websites today. But but, but, by the way... um, Both the book of Job and the book of Isaiah, written thousands of years ago, say that the world is a sphere. How how did they know that? No one knew that then. God knew that. He created the earth. It goes on further in the book of Job. The the question was always, I'm I'm so on a tangent. The question was always, uh, (laughs) I have to warn you guys. So you go, he's away from his notes. Who knows what he's going to say? I can't be held accountable. No, the the question was always, well, um, what holds up the earth? Right? And, and, and if, you, if you study the history of science, you realize that there were always these answers that were given. In India, the belief for thousands of years was that the earth was held up on the backs of two giant elephants who were standing on a giant sea turtle that was swimming through the universe. <laughs> and I'm not saying that's like some science fiction. That's what was believed. And, and the Greeks said, no, the, the earth is held up on pillars, just like the Greek columns that we see in architecture, held up on pillars. You know what it says in Job and Isaiah? It says that, that God cast the earth into the universe and it is held up by nothing. How did Job know that? You see, the word of God stands up against trends that come and go. Um, 50 years ago, the world's best scientists believed that the universe was infinite. Were they right? Of course not. But, but only theologians were making that argument. 
because all of the obvious science told us that the universe is infinite. You remember those of you who are old like me? Remember Carl Sagan when we were young? In the Cosmos show, his quote at the beginning of the show was always this, the cosmos is everything that is, was, or ever will be. Nature. And, and that's only 50 years ago. They all believed that the universe was infinite. The Bible teaches, though, that only God is infinite and that he created the universe, which must, by definition, therefore, be finite. Modern space telescopes now have removed any question. Every scientist, every astronomer now agrees that the universe is clearly not infinite. It is finite and it is expanding. And so... All of my point in all of this is not to, to bash science or say we should ignore science. Science is a wonderful way to study what God has created, but to say that human minds change on these things. The word of God stands forever. And by the way, that is one of the great reasons that we must be incredibly careful about the arguments that we're hearing today, which is to say that, hey, times are changing and maybe this ancient book isn't relevant anymore. God does not change. The principles of Scripture are true yesterday, today, and forevermore. So where are you going to build your life? On the unchanging Word of God or on the ever-shifting sands of public opinion? Now, some of you might say, listen, just because... Uh, public trends are not trustworthy just because opinions are not trustworthy people's feelings are not trustworthy that doesn't mean the bible is trustworthy and to be fair that's a really good point so let me ask some questions let's look at it this way is the bible historically accurate i don't know if any of you have a degree in history but but when you study history, you're, there's a basic foundational teaching and that is that the accuracy of history is measured in three ways Eyewitness accounts, do we have reliable eyewitness accounts? Uh, do we have reliable manuscripts about things that happened anciently? Those people who were eyewitnesses, did they get a recording of what they saw? And do we have those recordings? Uh, archaeology, do the diggings of archaeologists support what was being said? If we say there was a city here, if we say that there was a, a, a theater there, if we say there was a mountain there, do the diggings hold true? Well, let's just look at those quickly. And again, I wish I had time to really unpack this. I don't expect any of you to go away going, boy, all of my questions have been answered. But, but I'm hoping you'll go away going, man, I need to ask some more questions. But... but when we think of eyewitness accounts, guys, that's what this book is. Moses watched the Red Sea part and then wrote about it, right? Joshua watched the walls of Jericho come down and then wrote about it. Matthew walked with Jesus and witnessed the healings, the miracles, the teaching, the resurrection, and the ascension, and wrote about it. There are eyewitness accounts all through these 66 books. The manuscripts are the most reliable ancient manuscripts in human history. They, they withhold all kinds of study, and here's the basic reason for that. It's God's protection. Uh, the, the Jews who, who held the keys to the entire Old Testament for the longest time, 
um, had scribes. They were educated, they were trained, and then they were taught that their relationship to God depended on their ability to do this right. And they literally copied scrolls, not one word at a time, but one stroke at a time. You make the stroke, you look to the next page, you make the next stroke, you look to the next page, you make the next stroke until you've made the letter. And you go, and it takes years to copy a manuscript. And so you have hundreds of scribes who are copying these manuscripts, not, you know, no Xerox machines, no, no fax machines, no um, email, no way to just multiply these things except this. And each of them under threat of their lives um, doing it carefully. When it's done, then you would test it. There was a center letter, say, in the book of Isaiah. You go to the center. Is that letter in the center? If it's not, you tear the whole thing up and burn it and start again. There, there's a certain number of words. There's a certain number of letters. You check it. If it doesn't match, you tear the whole thing up and burn it and start again. There are so many ancient manuscripts. When they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was such an incredible thing. Some kid, some shepherd, throws a rock into a cave in Qumran and hears something break. What broke? It was a clay pot. What was in the clay pot? These scrolls that had been, had been protected in these pots for hundreds of years. And they now have manuscripts that are more ancient than had ever been seen before. And they are accurate within 99.99% of the ones that were 500 years newer. The manuscripts are the single most reliable ancient manuscripts in human hands. There is more evidence that the manuscript of the Bible is accurate, whether the, whether the statements are true or not, the, the manuscripts of the Bible are accurate. There is more evidence to that from a historical standpoint than there is that George Washington ever lived, which none of us question, right? Reliable manuscripts. Archaeology, the archaeology, the longer people do these diggings, the more the Bible is corroborated. The one that blew my mind a few years back was... Uh, when they discovered the ancient city of Jericho. If you've read the book of Joshua, they, they marched around the city seven days. On the seventh day, they blew the horns and shouted. And, and what happened? Yeah, did the walls fall in? Did the walls fall out? Were the walls destroyed by the oncoming uh, armies? No, it says the walls fell straight down. When they found the ancient city of Jericho and did the dig, they found that the walls of the city fell straight down, all the way around the city. There's no other city that has ever been found where the walls, the ruins, were not pushed in or pushed out. They fell straight down. That is one of a thousand examples of the archaeological reliability of the scriptures, the book of Psalms. Okay, oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> I have like 12 hours of stuff to tell you. Um, so um, let's just order pizza, shall we? No. Let's, <laughs> the, the, the seniors are like, tacos are calling my name. Okay, so, so listen, um, 
there, there are tons of great books and seminars available on this. If you want recommendations, come see me. I'll, I'll, I'll recommend something to you. But, but the, the, the other one I, I want to talk about is prophecy. The, the prophetic evidence is overwhelming. Um, there are over 300 specific Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 300. Details, dates, times, places. How he would be born, where he would be born, how he would die, where he would die, what he would do, his teachings, all prophesied in the Old Testament. The book of Psalms describes the crucifixion of Jesus in detail hundreds of years before crucifixion was a thing. Nobody had ever been crucified at that time. Now, what if I stood up here today and told you, listen, um, in the 2025 Super Bowl, the Rams are going to beat the Chargers. <laughs> Amen. The Rams are going to beat the Chargers by a score of 31 to 17. And then 2005 comes around, and sure enough, the Rams and the Chargers, that's a miracle in itself, Rams and the Chargers are in the Super Bowl, and the score is 31-17 Rams. Would you be impressed? I would be famous. I would be working at Vegas. What if I made the same exact prediction 500 years ago? Before there was a United States, before there was a sport called football, before there was a league called the NFL, before there was a game called the Super Bowl, before there was a team called the Rams or a team called the Chargers, and I still got it right. And what if I managed to do that hundreds and hundreds of times? Would that be evidence that maybe I'm hearing from God. See, that's what the Bible has done. And then some. That's a lot of compelling evidence. But maybe the most compelling evidence of all is how the word of God transforms our lives. If you're taking notes, you're gonna write this down. Uh, I want you to write down 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And I'm just gonna read it to you very quickly. You don't even have to turn there. I want you to look it up uh, this week at home. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And here's what it says. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. This verse, I should have just done a whole sermon on this. Here's, Here's what it is. He says, we're thanking God because we preach the word of God and you received it. How many of you know there's a lot of people who've heard the word of God and didn't receive it, right? We preached it, you received it, you had heard it from us, and you accepted it. And you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it actually is, the word of God, and you believed it, and it's performing its work in your lives. That's what the word of God is does. Listen, when God speaks, powerful things happen. 
Go back to Genesis 1. There was nothing but God until God spoke. And he said, let there be light. Boom, light. And and he said, let there be planets, let there be stars, let there be sun, let there be moon, let there be fish and birds and people. And every time he spoke, what he spoke came into being. Move ahead to the New Testament. Think about Jesus' miracles. Every time Jesus spoke, something incredible happened. Jesus spoke and people were healed. Jesus spoke and the blind could see. Jesus spoke and the deaf could hear. Jesus spoke and the lame were leaping. Jesus spoke and he brought resurrection to the dead with the, with the word of his mouth. He brought deliverance to those who were, who were um, possessed by speaking. He simply spoke to a legion of demons and said, get out. And they got out. Again and again and again, when God speaks, something very powerful happens. This is a book of God speaking. Now, now let me close with this. I'm going to read it to you again. You don't have to turn there because somebody in the Kids Connection is going to come running in here in a minute and scream at me. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, also a very well-known verse. Here's what it says. For the word of God, that's the Bible, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is living. Every time I read that verse, I'm so weird. I think of the movie Young Frankenstein. He goes, it's alive! That's this book. It's alive. Every other book you've ever held has been dead. But this book is alive. It is living. It is active. It is able to transform our hearts and our lives. It is a living book. You know what that means? It means it's not just a record of the words that God once spoke. It is a record of words that God is speaking today. Because God is still alive and his word is still alive. It's not some ancient dusty book that's irrelevant to our lives. It's a living and active speech from God. And the Holy Spirit is using it to transform lives right now. And since all of that is true, I'm going to just give you three things by way of application. Number one, read your Bible. I'm going to lecture. No, no, no lecture. Guys, you got one of these books. If you don't, like, it probably came pre-installed on your phone, and I know you got a phone. We, we probably, on average in this room, have a minimum of five copies of this each. And most of those copies are covered in dust. It's alive. Read your Bible. Number two... Study your Bible. It is not just a devotional manuscript. It is not just given to you so that you can read something and be encouraged and wonder what it means and move on. Most of the people who have run into trouble with the Bible and said, I just don't understand it, have been the people who simply read it devotionally and never studied it. 
but do what you can to study it. You don't have to have an advanced degree. All you need to have is a curious mind. Look up the cross-references. Um, ask yourself, what is the meaning of this word? Ask your pastor or your grace group leader or your friend, hey, what do you know about this verse? What do you think it means to you? I love it when I, I'm gonna probably be sorry I said this. I love it when I get these emails that come in during the week. When your email says, you know, I really don't like the color of the carpet, then I don't care. But, <laughs> but when, when your email says, hey, I was reading James chapter three today and I thought of this, is that right? Right? Man, I'll give you my whole week to talk about the Word of God together. The Word of God is powerful. Study it. And then the third thing is, apply it to your life. He, he, Jesus said the difference between the guy with the flat house and the guy with the house that stands is the one guy applied the Word of God. The enemy is lying when he tries to convince you that God's word is dead and uninteresting and irrelevant and untrustworthy. So why does he keep telling those lies? Because he knows that God's word has been spoken and once it is received, believed, and applied, it is the one foundation that cannot be shaken. Whatever it takes, get God's word into your life today. Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, we want to say thank you that you haven't just left us to wonder about truth. We thank you that through the generations, through the millennia, you have protected your word and delivered it to us in a language that we understand. It's astonishing, God, what you have done to protect and deliver your word to us. And now I pray, God, that not one of us would take it for granted. Not one of us would leave it sitting on the shelf. That not one of us would ignore what it clearly teaches. That we would trust you enough to trust your word and we'd apply it in our lives. And our lives would be so transformed that everyone who knows us would say, what happened to you? This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.